Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're very proud to have with us today author Carol Engel Averyett, author of Marine Raiders, one of the best books I have read in the past year, an absolute page-turner. This is, the, this is the true story of the legendary World War II battalions you may not have heard of, but these guys have, have built themselves a place in legend that uh, no one can ever take away. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait to talk to Carol right now about what inspired her to write this and some of the experiences that she had. Carol, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, John. It's my pleasure. Let's start with what inspired you to go after this story. Well, um, I'll tell you, this. Uh, I started writing military history books about 12 years ago, but it was after a 35-plus year career in journalism where I interviewed people, wrote their stories, and I've been writing really ever since I was a little girl in grade school and put together three or four sentences to make a little short story. So the writing has always been a love. But my love for military history um, is probably a little bit more complex than that. I had so many people in my family who had been in World War II, all my uncles. Uh, my father was career Navy, uh, retired as a chief um, petty officer. My stepdad joined up uh, in December 1941, the day after he graduated from law school. And he went to North Africa, was uh, in Sicily, and then up the boot of Italy with Major Mark, uh, General Mark Clark. And so I just grew up hearing stories. One of my uncles, in fact, had a great saying. He was had folksy wisdom, and he had this wonderful saying that I heard all the time growing up as a, as a young girl. There ain't no fake stories as good as the real ones. <laughs> and he, yep. my, my Uncle Jasper would know something about that because when he was a teenager, he volunteered to go with General Claire Lee Chenault to Burma. Mm-hmm. And he became the chief mechanic for Chenault and the Flying Tigers. Wow. Yep. Kept, uh, yep, kept, uh, helped to keep those P-40s in the air. And um, so, so I heard all these stories. So writing military history books, and this is my, I've written seven books, this is my third military history book, 
is just a natural intersection between my love for writing and my love of, of military stories. And um, it, it this, this, this one, though, the Marine Raiders, has been the most challenging. But you know, it's like in, it's sometimes like things that are the most challenging. They are also the most rewarding in the end. Oh, yeah. And You've done a spellbinding story here. I, uh, Carol picked four Marine Raiders and the lives of those Raiders to take us through this story. Uh, Lee Minier, Archie Rackerby, Kenny Merrill, and Ed Bloomberg. And she tells the, how they got into the Marines and how they got picked for the Marine Raiders and, uh, and what they were able to accomplish while they were in. You did a fascinating job with their lives. It really just brings you right into the story. Oh, thank you so much, Ron. I appreciate that. Let me tell you why I chose to structure the book this way. Um, as I began to do my research, and I researched this book about four years, there are books, very, some very fine biographies um, out there about certain leaders and the Raiders, but uh, and, and, and a couple of books about a couple of marine raiders themselves but but not one that sort of told the overarching story from the creation of the first marine raider battalion then the second third and fourth and so what i decided to do was to pick a raider to represent each of those four mm -hmm. battalions tell their story in depth and as you tell their story in depth, then, of course, you see the development of the battalion that they were in. So 1st Marine Raider Battalion was Lee Manier. 2nd Raider Battalion was a Kenny Mudhole Merrill. And he, he, his nickname was Mudhole, got it in an incredible story. Actually, the son of FDR, uh, President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Jimmy Roosevelt was the one who named, gave Kenny his nickname, mm -hmm. and we have that story. It's a great story in the book. Third Raider Battalion was Colonel Archibald Boyd Rackerby. That's a name, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> and Fourth Raider Battalion was Ed, and his nickname was the, the Swede. Swede. They called him the Swede because he obviously was from Sweden. Blomberg. Now, here's what's so cool about this. Three of those men were alive, and I was able to, still living, I was able to interview in depth through, I mean, I can't even tell you how many phone calls, emails, letters, uh, conversations that I had with three of them. That's three fantastic. living World War II Raiders. Two of them, unfortunately, at the very end of writing the book, passed away. One of them, however, Ed Blomberg, is still living. He turned 100 years old this past December. So, of course, he'll be 101 this coming December. But in two weeks, I'm going to be with him, and we're going to present a, a program to the young Marine Raiders at Camp Lejeune. Is that not going to be fun? That's going to be absolutely <laughs> awesome. And oh, That's another story in a story. Did they have a Marine, a Marine Raiders battalion at Quantico? There, uh, well, at Lejeune. At Lejeune, sorry. Well, yes, the um, the Raiders were disbanded, as you learn in the book, yes. after about twenty months, and there's there's some reasons for that, and I go into that in the book. But for years, then for seventy five years, 
the Marine Corps was without a special forces branch or unit. Uh, the other services, the other military branches had theirs. You know, the Navy had the SEALs, mm-hmm. and, uh, the Army, the Green Berets, and so on and so forth. But ironically, the Marine Corps really was the first branch to have a large organized, large organized units of special forces, and that was the Raiders in World War II. Mm-hmm. So in 2006, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld laid the foundation to reinstate a special forces unit within the Marine Corps. It took, of course, a few years to get that going. They were called MARSOC for a while, uh, Marine Special Operations Command. But in 2014, and this is such a neat story, at a Raider reunion where the Commandant of the Marine Corps was, was a guest and speaking, these World War II Raiders stood up and said, Sir, you need to rename these special forces in the Marine Corps Raiders, mm-hmm. because that's what they are. And that was his last, it was Commandant Amos, it was his last uh, edict that he did before retiring. And so today, and so they've only been known now for uh, Marine Raiders for about five or six years, about a half a dozen years, but they are now renamed Marine Raiders. Well, congratulations to them. That is a that is a great, great thing. And it's one of the one of the neat things about your book. It explains why they were only in existence for twenty months, uh, and the and the feeling that the Marine uh, a higher command had that listen, all Marines are capable of acting like special forces as needed and as no ordered. And that was the yeah. feeling that why should we separate out a separate group? And then you, you, your story answers that. And that, that was the question I had for you next. The Edson Raiders were trained by men with special talents to do special things. Um, exactly. And I'd like you, you know to explain uh, who, um, when you, uh, and, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I would like you to explain <laughs> at some point who was Merritt Edson, and who was Evans Carlson, and how much effect did they have on the actual direction and training of the of those uh, of the Marine Raiders? Okay, uh, why don't I start there? Um, actually, the leaders of that, that the, those men that were chosen, picked to actually lead each battalion, were some of the most charismatic, interesting military leaders I have ever studied in my life. Every every, every one of them. Merritt Edson had been uh, in the Marine Corps. He had fought in Nicaragua. So had Carlson, as a matter of fact. They both had been in China in the late 30s. So they knew firsthand uh, what the Japanese fighters were capable of, and they had learned their tactics. That is one of the reasons why they were picked to lead these two uh, battalions, the Battalion 1 and and 1st Raider Battalion, 2nd Raider Battalion 1st respectively, is because they knew what, what the Japanese were like. Uh, they knew this, the sort of incredible uh, warriors that they were and what their tactics were like. For example, the bonsai raids that they would do at night and um, these, uh, these this wave after wave of, of coming in and not stopping, of uh, wave after wave of, of warriors coming in. So Edson and Carlson both determined that they were going to create battalions of special forces that could really um, fight hand-to-hand, could uh, be raiding uh, parties, 
they they were considered um, uh, they were light infantry. They carried light weaponry. They would come in. They would land at night, uh, move quickly through the jungle, uh, create havoc, confusion, and then retreat just as quickly. Light, quick, fast-moving raids. Total guerrilla operations. Yep. Total, exactly, exactly. Total guerrilla operations. And really, before the war started, um, a couple of the Marine Corps um, leaders were sent to England to train with British commandos. So they picked up tactics over there, and of course, the Marine, our Marine raiders had special knives, stilettos. Uh, they had special slogans that they said, gung-ho. Um, uh, saddle up was another that they used quite frequently. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't even realize that that phrase "gung ho" comes from Evans Carlson. Hmm. He would start his meetings with his raiders by saying "gung ho raiders" or "ahoy raiders," and the word "gung" means um, uh, teamwork or working together. "Ho" means harmony. So it means the team, we work together in harmony. And people use gung-ho all the time and have no idea that it, it comes directly from Marine Raiders in World War II. And they got their training firsthand. A lot of people don't realize that Japan started their wars in 1937, uh, four years before we got in. So these guys had that very valuable experience fighting Japanese uh, over in China. Which... Right, exactly. Now, you ask me why they only lasted about 20 months, mm -hmm. um, 20, 21 months. The nature of the war in the South Pacific gradually changed. As, as the Marine Corps and Army units moved up what they call the island ladder going toward the, the mainland of Japan, more and more forces were required huge, massive numbers of men, uh, massive artillery, m massively heavier weaponry than what these Marine Raiders uh, were, were had or carried or were trained with. Now, not that they couldn't hold their own. They're, they were trained so well, their fire discipline, um, their ability just to um, st stay on on target and on mission was just so incredible that even sometimes outweighed by these this much heavier weaponry, they were able to hold their own. But the war gradually changed. No longer were light raids, uh, these light infantry-type raids, uh, required. It was more the heavy beating of heavy artillery and um, massive numbers of men, like what happened at Iwo, Iwo Jima. Uh, like at Okinawa, like in Guam. And um, so the nature of the war changed, and the raiders themselves, these warriors, were folded into um, larger marine, regular line marine divisions. We'll return we'll to our interview right after, right after these sponsor, sponsor messages. messages. And, now, and now, back to back our story. story. What was it like actually having the opportunity to interview these guys uh, a number of times. Um, where do the conversations tend to go? And who was the best with details? Well, I tell you all of them, um, all three of the ones that I interviewed, such different personalities. <laughs> I mean, Kenny Mudhole Merrill was 17 years old 
when he enlisted. He had to get his, his dad, who was the police chief of Gila County in Arizona, to, to sign for him. And um, he'd, he'd been sort of a handful his whole life, Kenny had. And he was a great football player, loved, uh, loved uh, hitting and being hit, and he, he just a totally different personality. What a character. And he was so fun to talk to. Uh, even at, you know, 96 years old, he was just a delight when we talked. Mm. And, uh, and just a, a character. So different from Archibald Boyd Rackerby. What a name. Mm. Who was, uh, became a platoon leader, uh, was part of the invasion of Bougainville. Uh, that was the last and, campaign, and, wasn't it, for the Raiders? Yes, the last campaign of the Raiders. And yet... What an incredible uh, man. He, he must have been just an outstanding leader. He stayed in the reserves after he came, became a colonel, a Marine colonel in the reserves. And um, I talked with him. Um, he was 98 when he passed away a year and a half ago, and I'm still dear friends with his wife. This is a side story. We cover this in the book. She was married originally to someone that had been in his platoon. Hmm. That was her first husband. And uh, they were married for a number of years, and he had a massive, Cliff had a massive heart attack. We talk about this in the book. And later at a Marine Raider reunion, she met Archie Rackerby, who had been her husband's uh, platoon leader. And Archie was now a widower himself. Well, they married. Archie was 89 and she was 84, and they spent 10 wonderful years together. Um, and so she she loves to say, you know, I was married to not just one World War II Marine Raider, but two. <laughs> it was just a, and plus they, they served together. Such a neat story. So all four of the Raiders that are in the book are so different in personality, temperament. Uh, Lee Manier had a gorgeous baritone voice and he and some other guys formed a singing group that became very wide known in Gu Guadalcanal and they would sing to the troops when they were you know in between battles and there's even a story where Lee after the battle of Bloody Ridge the, the men were so tired and it had been such a fierce fierce battle and some of the men came to him and they were just uh, just so tired worn out and they said, Lee, could you sing to us just something quiet? And he would softly sing hymns to them. Um, and they said, you know, we'd been surrounded by death for, for 38 hours. And our buddies, you know, and um, just a terrible time. And he, they, they said, hearing his voice just soothed us. And they said for a short time we were able to, to, to go back home. Yeah, you can just picture him there. You know, these guys are bloody. They're bandaged. They lost a lot of their uh, fighting buddies. It was an extremely hard time. They had, and Lee is, is there maybe singing a song like Nearer My God to Thee and what it must have meant for them right. at that at that moment. Right. I wanted to ask you, uh, for the sake of our younger listeners, what kind of hardships did these Marines face on, on those island campaigns? Oh, my goodness. Um, what they would tell me consistently was that we found out that we were fighting another enemy, not just a two-legged one. 
the jungle was an enemy in and of itself. Um, I can't, you know, as I listen to their stories, I honestly cannot imagine staying just drenched, wet, constantly wet, 24-7. You, you, you were in the jungle, so hot, so humid, <clears throat> and especially in places like Bougainville where it just rained all the time. And you could never get dry. It, you tried to, you could, had to sleep in it. You woke up, you were drenched, your uniform was drenched, your socks, your boots had water in it, in them. And th- they began, their skin just began to disintegrate. Mm-hmm. They had sores, uh, particularly in the crevices, uh, all over their bodies. Uh, and these sores would be sometimes maybe three, four, five inches in diameter, like like large ringworm-type sores, all over their bodies. They had dysentery. They had malaria. Um, they had beriberi. Um, and beriberi is something that uh, Mudhole Merrill suffered with the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a condition that uh, kind of, I guess, once it sets in, it, it stays very, with very difficult. stays with you. Yeah. So, so the, the jungle became an enemy and it it was just I, I i honestly cannot imagine it would just wear you down i think and it, and it did a, a lot of them just uh, just broke under the the weight of that uh, uh, that environment what was the longest time that they had to spend uh at one place wasn't it something like 30 or 40 days straight yes that was called the long patrol yeah and that was Second Raider Battalion. Um, Carlson was uh, the leader there, and they <laughs> actually the distance between where they started and and where they ended up, which was Henderson Field there on Guadalcanal, was only as he reminded his troops only about twenty five or thirty miles as the crow flies. But as one of his uh, <laughs> one of his one of his men um, spoke up, yelled out, and said, "Yeah, but sir, we're not crows." <laughs> yeah. By the time by the time they left, well, they actually started at Aola Bay, which was uh, south of Henderson Field, and marched all the way to Henderson Field. Took them thirty days, and by the time they reached the field, they had covered over a hundred fifty miles, serpentine winding their way in and out through the jungle in places that even the natives that lived there had never been. And um, it, it it's called the Long Patrol by the time they got back. In fact, we've got a first-hand account, Mudhole wrote it, and it, it will just, you, 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 can't, you can't read it without, every time I read it, I, I, I just have to put it down and uh, step away from it a little bit. It'll just... Um, it's it's unbelievable, really, what they went through. Tell us about the Battle of Edson's Ridge. That was the long battle I mentioned a few minutes ago, the uh, Edson's Battle of Bloody Ridge. And there are some historians that know it well enough, they just call it the Ridge. It's mm-hmm. sort of that, that well-known in history buff circles. Um, it was primarily... First Raider Battalion, but there were also some paramarines, paratroopers who were Marines that a, a unit of, of 
that group that fought under Edson. There was also a unit of line regular line marines that that came under Edson's purview during that battle. They were outnumbered. Some say three. Some say perhaps as many as five to one. Five Japanese soldiers to one uh, marine raider. They were guarding the approach to Henderson Field, is that correct? And Edson had staked out a a, a very unique spot that he felt would be under pressure. Absolutely. It was a high ridge that overlooked, in fact, we've got a picture of it in the book, uh, that overlooked Henderson Field. And had the Japanese taken that ridge, uh, Commander Vandegrift, um, General Vandegrift had told Edson, he said, if they, if if you let the Japanese come in, he said, this is sort of like a last stand here. Mm-hmm. If you let them come in, we will become another Bataan. Yep. I mean, it was that, it was that dire, that critical. And so Edson just looked at his men and and he said, he said, we're 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 not giving ground. We we will we will stand here and we will defend this ridge. They will not take it. And that was no easy job. That, that was foxhole fighting. That was hand-to-hand combat, a lot of that. Hand-to-hand. Messy at, stuff. At, at, toward, toward, crazy stuff. Toward the end, Edson had pulled his line into a horseshoe shape with the, the outer part of the horseshoe facing the Japanese that were coming. In other words, mm-hmm. the open end would be toward Henderson Field, the circular part of the horseshoe facing. And so... As the Japanese surrounded that horseshoe made up of Marine Raiders and these other two or three units, the men backed up, backed up until at certain times they were back-to-back with each other fighting hand-to-hand the enemy. And that is just unbelievable, crazy, crazy kind of stuff, really. How did Mudhole get his name? Could you explain that story? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, They were training. In San Diego, before they left to, uh, to to go to war in the Pacific, and they were out on a long hike, and they, t- I'm telling you, Carson, uh, made them hike all over that desert, all over outside of San Diego and in the desert, and um, they were on an especially long hike, and uh, Kenny was carrying uh, a heavy 32-pound uh, machine gun, and... <laughs> They had stopped. Carlson had stopped to give them a break. They had marched about 20 miles. And he gave them a break, and um, Kenny looked around. He was out of water, and he spotted this little uh, mud puddle. And so he got down on his hands and knees, and as he tells the story, he says, you know, you grow grow up in Arizona, you appreciate any kind of water. (laughs) So... He got down on his hands and knees, and he's got his face. He's lapping it up like a dog with his tongue. He just was so thirsty. And Colonel uh, Jimmy Roosevelt, Major Roosevelt at the time, Jimmy Roosevelt, was walking past him and evidently had taken off his glasses. His face was drenched and taken off his glasses. You know how you wipe your glasses to get the sweat off. And he just about stumbled over Mudhole, didn't see him down there on his hands and knees. And, of course, he, you know, came out with some choice expletives and, you know, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> Kenny, what, well, Beryl, why are you down there on your hands and knees? He said, sir, I'm just getting a drink of water. And he said, well, you know, get your face out of that mud hole. And, of course, he's he's giggling 
Roosevelt can't wait to get back and tell Carlson uh, what happened to, to, to Kenny Merrill. And that became his nickname. Those guys, those raiders around him heard what had, what had happened, and they said, why, you are nothing but a mud hole. <laughs> and he became Mud Hole Merrill. And honestly, in his, his, when his family uh, wrote his uh, funeral uh, ceremonial commemorative uh, article in the newspaper after he passed away, he was known as Mudhole Merrill. That's what everybody called him after that. <laughs> what are the greatest lessons you've learned from these World War II vets? The greatest lesson. Well, I think a couple of things. Um, and I've, I've, it's funny, I've, I've thought about this so much. Of the ones that I interviewed and through the letters, of Lee Manier. They had, yes, I, I know that there were times when they may have appeared, you know, um, a little bit. They had a swagger in their walk, and uh, they were, they were, could be brawlers, you know. They, when they landed on Midway, uh, the word got around. You didn't sneak up um, behind a raider too quietly. You, you made him know you were coming up behind him because you might, who knows what, how he might react. But mostly, they had such a quiet humility about themselves, and there was a confidence. E even when I would talk to them, they were 96, 98 years old, Ed even today 100, there's a quiet humility about them. And I think it comes from knowing that they were part of something that was splendid. I, I call them in the book, these were like magnificent shooting stars, short-lived and magnificent. Shooting stars, short-lived and magnificent. And they, they just have a confidence about themselves that, that they did something truly, truly, meaningful and spectacular in defending our country. Very well put. Very well put. Carol, one of the things that's really special about the book is the quality of the maps that are in here, also also your photographs. Could you tell me a little bit about how you put all that together? Yes, um, there are a number of, of maps that are available um, in, um, you know, USMC type um, uh, maps that are easily available and, and um, that you can reproduce, but I decided to get my illustrator to sort of tweak them so that they just uh, emphasize the engagements that the raiders were involved in, since that is the subject of the book, Marine Raiders, and not our magnificent Marines overall. And so the maps then zero in on uh, the, the radar engagements themselves. And I, I love looking at a map when I'm reading about something. It just helps me visualize, you know, I say, oh, okay, well, you know, here's where they landed, or this is the side of that island that they landed on. And, um, and I think the readers will enjoy seeing those. The other thing is um, we, ha we had some wonderful photos, and Regnery did a fabulous job of the quality of reproducing these black and white photos. Many of them have never 
never been produced before, you know, never been reprinted before that I got from these families. So it, it's just, it's very special in that way. It's very personal, I think, of these uh, four men. Yeah, I'm looking at Jimmy Roosevelt's picture right now, and no surprise, he looks a lot like his dad. <laughs> right, right. I last spoke with Carol, oh, I think Carol was about a year and a half ago, wasn't it, about Coffin Corner Boys, which was an excellent book. Mm -hmm. It was a great story. I love that oh, one. John, thank you so much for, for bringing that up. That, just a little side note, uh, it was reproduced just last uh, month before last in July in paperback form as part of Regnery's uh, World War II collection, and I was so honored uh, that they did that. It's really done well, and we've, we've had so many families say, oh, my goodness, this really helps us understand what uh, being a crew member on a B-17. I had an uncle, I had a dad or uh, a cousin that was a member of a B-17 crew, and that really helps us understand what those guys did. So, Oh, uh, there was another part of the book, I believe, where you talked about the use of war dogs. Uh, yes. Could you tell um, me a little bit about that as it, as it, yes. as it applied to the Raiders? Yes, yes. Um, they were actually one of the first groups to use, uh, to try out war dogs, uh, in, and, and there they were in the South Pacific. We have a wonderful eyewitness testimony of the actual D-Day invasion of Bougainville, and they've got the dogs. And you, I didn't realize this, but they, they were called PFCs, <laughs> and whatever their first name was, let's say PFC Andy was one of the war dogs, and uh, PFC Caesar uh, is another that the Marines were particularly fond of. But right at first, the Raiders were a little bit skeptical. They said, you know, my gosh, what can they do that, you know, I mean, really, what can a dog do that we can't do in terms of, uh, you know, sensing Japanese, looking out for them? But I'll tell you, the, the, the Raiders were quick studies, <laughs> and they learned very, very quickly, that these dogs could do amazing things. There's an example we've got in the book where one of the dogs stops. They're, they're on a patrol, and he's out about 25 yards ahead, and all of a sudden he just goes into a freeze. And that he had been trained to turn his head very slowly in the direction of where he sensed danger. And sure enough, there were two Japanese snipers up in that tree. And uh, it's it saved uh, the Marine Raiders' lives. So you can imagine, after that, they dug their foxholes large enough to hold a dog and their trainer. <laughs> so, because they, they, they realized how valuable they were. Uh, and they also went on to say it actually allowed them to sleep better at night because they knew the dogs were awake and would be alerted, you know, either by sound, or sounds that they couldn't hear, uh, or smell even, so it's it, it, that is a, an amazing little part of the story that's just absolutely fabulous um, about the war dogs. There's another. There's one other part of the story I'd like you to share with us, and that is it's toward the end of the book, and it's at the point where they're considering disbanding the raiders, and the raiders were given orders uh, now that the now that the the top brass had decided that the nature of the war had changed, and that and that their use, their specialty, their special, their special training was no longer needed. That they were ordered into battle uh, practically shoulder to shoulder, uh, which absolutely was 
not the way they were trained to fight, at change in thinking. Who was behind All that? Right. Well, the um, that particular that particular battle, the Battle of Barocco Harbor, a lot of uh, a lot of historians call that uh, the real beginning of the end because it was first. Raider Battalion and 4th Raider Battalion were involved in that, and they were coming up against a heavily stationary fortified position. Concrete, um, they had concrete walls that the Japanese were behind. It was a stationary, concrete, solid um, position that the Raiders were trying to fight against. They needed air cover. They did not get it. It was called in. There are records that it was called in. Um, Liver's Edge um, and um, uh, Curran called in, asked for air cover before the Raiders would attack that stationary, heavily defended target there at Morocco Harbor, and they didn't get it. They It was received. Why it was set aside uh, remains a mystery, but the air cover was not coming. They fought, they fought, and even so outnumbered, and even just with light weaponry, and um, it was their fire discipline and marksmanship, they almost carried the day. But Sam Griffith and uh, Mickey Curran, the leaders in that uh, engagement, realized that were they to continue on the price would just be too great. They had already had suffered so many casualties. And so Liver's Edge calls in for air support the following morning, and this time he says, I need air support. You are now covering our withdrawal. Yeah. And those words were so painstaking. And I guarantee you, uh, and I say this, I think, in the book, the Marine Raiders would never withdraw unless they were ordered to. Mm-hmm. But that that shows you um, a little bit of how the war itself was changing and what was needed rather than the light infantry, um, fast-moving uh, type. But but like I say, they were trained so well, their marksmanship so good, fire discipline so good, they almost carried the day anyway. Mm-hmm. But the cost would have been cost would have been too great. Well, we've only covered just a small portion of the tremendous stories that are found in this book, Marine Raiders, by Carol Engel Avery. Uh, Carol, thank you for this book. Where can people go to find it, and how do they? And where can they go to get in touch with you? All right. Well, they can go to, um, of course, uh, Amazon uh, on the books. I have an author's page there that they can check out, uh, or wherever books, uh, wherever books are sold. And um, so there are several options uh, of where they can where they can get it, where they can where it can be ordered. It has been released, so it's ready for delivery um, today. If you order it today, um, you might even can get it today, but but certainly by the, in the next day or two. And everyone, Coffin Corner Boys is just going into paperback, so that's a good one too. Coffin Corner Boys, that's a tremendous story as well. So I encourage all of you to. To order Marine Raiders and Coffin Corner Boys and anything else Carol has done. Her style, her style of writing is absolutely great. When she sits down with one of her books, you're you're caught. <laughs> and very, very enjoyable and a great history. Well researched. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, when you, just like my uncle said, when, you, when you've got the real stories, the fake ones just are no longer interesting. <laughs> so. Very, very true. Thanks for being with us today at 1001 Heroes. We appreciate it, and it's just a privilege for us to have you on. And God, Thank you so much. And God bless right. those veterans. My pleasure. God, and God bless you for uh, highlighting their lives. I, we, uh, God bless our country as well. Amen.